folks, there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you never get a chance to see. This morning you got to see what happens when the computer crashes in the middle of the service. And would you just give a hand to those guys over there for all their... Because um, otherwise we would just be kind of going, okay, well, we're winging this one. Absolutely. So this morning, we're going to, uh, to answer the question that leading a God-directed life seems to indicate to me. If you're leading a God-directed life, then where are you going? What does it look like when you arrive? How do you know you're there when you're there? There's no little sign, you know. Don't you wish there was one? Don't you wish one would drop out of heaven when you finally got this discipleship thing figured out where God would just kind of drop a sign in front of you and go, hey, here's your new sign. You know, we can get rid of the one that says stupid guy. You can just have disciple guy now, right? Here's your new sign. Here's what's going to happen with you. Here's, here's what happened. You crossed a line yesterday and you made it. Don't you wish there was some kind of a you've arrived celebration when you got discipleship right? When you finally were, finally made it made sense to you. Uh, anybody else feel frustrated when they go on a trip and not know where they're going? I have a hard time leaving my driveway if I don't know where I'm going. Uh, just yesterday, my wife and I were getting ready to leave, to go somewhere. She had been she had all the directions and the information on her phone. I literally sat at the edge of my driveway saying, "Where am I going? Where am I going?" And I did not move until she had directions. Because I didn't know where the end was, and I at least needed to know which direction to turn out of my driveway. I just don't like leaving unless I know where the destination is. I'm not, the, I'm not that really, uh, you know, just drive and go nowhere sort of a guy. I, if I know that, my, that nowhere is my objective, then it's not as bad. But it does seem a little like a waste of gas unless the convertible top is down. Then I don't care. Then we can drive around. I, I think that's maybe the same if you have a motorcycle. You get on and you go. And you just enjoy the ride and not worry about so much how much you're going. If you're driving the 4x4, then you know that you're spending so much money on gas, you need a destination for this thing, right? So for, for me, I really like to have a destination. So today I'm going to try to put into perspective, try to, try to at least bring into focus what the destination looks like, okay? Um, I'm going to tell you right now... Um, it's going to be frustrating, and you're probably not going to like it, and it's going to be a little difficult. Woohoo! <laughs> so as we talk about this destination this morning, I want to start with uh, a familiar voice. You remember that? You remember that song that Tevye sings to sort of introduce you to his relationship with God at the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof. Remember the song? You know, uh, it's, it's a very Western sort of a song, really. If I were a rich man. And then he makes all kinds of nonsense noises. Okay, because you can't imagine what rich man feels like. There's a line in that song, there's a moment in that song that I would really like to bring back to your mind. And if you watch the screen, I think miraculously Tevye is about to sing it for you. Because those guys are amazing. 
if the computer crashed, I would have told the preacher, you're on go. Amazing takes time. If I were a rich man, all day long I could If I were a wealthy man, you wouldn't have to work Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? If I were a wealthy Thanks, guys. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if you would answer my prayer? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if life was better than it is for me? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? How would that really mess things up, God? I can't see how answering this particular prayer for me would be a big deal, a big problem for heaven after all. Right? Lord, I just wanted to know which woman to marry. That's all I wanted to know. Lord, I just wanted to know. I, I just wanted to know whether I should help with this or not help with this. That's all I wanted. I didn't, I'm not asking for a great deal. I just, just want a little help, a little guidance, a little direction here. I just want you to tell me what to do next. I'll be, I'll be willing to do whatever it is. Just tell me what you want me to do next. Why is it that the will of God can seem so distant and so mysterious. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9, we have this statement that, that Paul writes to the Ephesians where he describes the will of God by saying he has revealed to us his mysterious will. We're going to get to this text in a minute, but I want you to think about this. His mysterious will. Does it feel mysterious to you? You ever, you ever bump up into the will of God and say, I don't understand. It's just bizarre. It's mysterious. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know what he wants me to do. I'm willing to do whatever it is, God, but I don't know what it is. Lord, is it going to spoil the plans of heaven for me to get over this illness? For my friend not to die? What, what are you doing, God? Is there, is there nobody listening up there? Is there no one actually in charge? Who's really on the throne? There is a, a great moment of surrender described scripturally. The greatest moment of scriptural surrender, I think, in the whole Bible. It's a little out of our reach because of who it is. Oh. Let me move on. It's that moment when Jesus is in the garden. Before you think about the moment by itself, remember the background of it. Remember, Jesus has been marching toward the cross for some time. He's told the disciples, in fact, that's where I'm bound. I'm headed for the cross. 
And as he's talked to them about this, he's been describing, I'm going to be turned over to be crucified. The disciples don't get it. They even rebel against the very idea of it. He has to tell Peter, get behind me because you're tempting me to not go to the cross. This has been the destination for Jesus the entire time. Jesus knew this was the bargain when he came to the earth. He knew this was the deal when it started. Remember, the devil offers him the the entire world, and he won't have to go to the cross. And Jesus says, no, no, it is better for me to do the will of my Father. And now when it comes to that day, he's been in the upper room with his disciples. He's told Peter, his best bud, his his one of his closest companions, Peter, his friend who 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 swears he will stand with him forever. The Holy Spirit reveals to Jesus, Peter needs to be warned because he's going to be tempted and he's going to fall away. And he turns to his best friend. He turns to Peter, who swears absolute allegiance. And he says, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter is despairing over that. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, the Spirit has revealed to God and revealed to Jesus, or revealed to Jesus long before that this man is a traitor. And now tonight, at this very moment, as Jesus is in Gethsemane, one of his disciples is off telling the chief priests where they can find him so that they can crucify him. So this has not been a good night for Jesus. It's been a, a, a dis- discouragement upon a discouragement upon a discouragement. And now here he is in the garden. Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began sorrowfully and deeply distressed then he said to them, to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus is not prone to exaggeration. Right? Jesus doesn't seem to be the person who exaggerates when he makes a statement. And he just told his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. My heart is breaking to the point that I, I feel like I could die. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He went a little further, farther, and fell on his face face and prayed. (laughs) Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I need to stop there because that's where we live. That's where so many of us struggle. That's the battle we go go at every single day. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Whatever is in the cup doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's this, it's this crisis of asking that we find ourselves struggling with, right? It's the, it's the whatever's in the cup, whether it's the healing of your child, the saving of your own life, whether, no matter what the issue is that's in the cup, you come to Jesus and you say, do I have to really drink this cup? Really? Can we just can we find a different way to do this? With all sincerity, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want this to be part of my life. I don't want this to be my future. I don't ever want this to be my past. Come on. In the moment when Jesus is facing the cross, 
He does what we do. He says to the Father, I'd I'd rather not do this. I don't want to pass through this. I don't want to drink this cup. I can see what is bound up in this. I can see what's ahead of me if this is the case, and I don't want to do it. And then comes to me what is this moment of surrender that is to, to my best understanding the destination for all believers who are going to be disciples. The destination of a God-directed life is in this last phrase. Not as I will, but as you will. Thy will be done. I don't want to do this. I don't want to face this. I don't want to have any part in this. Now, we have, we have, sometimes, we have sometimes made this out to be sort of the chickening out prayer. You know what I'm saying? You know, we, we have an anointing for someone who we wish to be healed and we gather around them, we lay our hands on them, we anoint them with oil as the Bible describes and we ask God to heal them. And, and some of us feel like if we use these words, we're chickening out. I don't think it's so. I don't think these words are in any way chickening out. I think these words are the ultimate expression of faith. This is the statement that says, I don't even know what's best for me, God. I don't even understand what you understand. I can't see what you see. I don't understand any of the the things that are going on around me. What happens in this world is a mystery to me, God. And so I am going to allow that you know better than I, so your will be done. Period, flat, end of story. Jesus facing the cross, which he knew was coming and had known was coming for a long, long time. You ever been called to something you didn't want to do? I didn't want to be a pastor. I don't make enough money. Flat out, that's the truth. I was, my plan when I was leaving, finishing high school was to go to uh, Cal State Hayward, which was at the time one of the top ten business schools in, the, in California. I was going to go to Cal State. I was going to work my way through there. I was going to get a job in San Francisco. And I was going to end my career at the top of one of those buildings. I didn't really care what job. I didn't really care what building. I didn't care what industry. All I knew that at the end of the day, I wanted to have a really big paycheck. Sorry, I didn't have better motivations than that. And God began to whittle away at that. He began he began began to bring people into my life who said things like, you should consider being a pastor. And when they first began to say this, I just laughed. I, in, my, in my heart, I didn't, I, I didn't laugh out loud to them because that would be rude, but I just kind of, in, inside myself, I just kind of went, yeah, right, that's not happening. There are a lot of things that God might do, but that isn't one of them. And that just came day after day. It came for, for a couple of years. This kept happening to me. This kept happening. People kept saying this. People kept pushing that into my life. And I had a plan. I didn't need their plan. I didn't need their lack of vision to enter into my plan. And as I kept working through this, 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 this discussion with God, their plan began to become my conviction. And it was not a conviction I wanted. It was not a job I wanted. It was not, it was not the intended purpose of my life as far as I understood that life. And so I fought against God with this for a couple of years. 
Some of you know the story. When it came down to it, I made a deal with them. Never make a deal with God unless you're willing to lose this deal. If you're going to make a deal with God, you've got to know that He's a lot better at this than you are. I have a friend you should never bet with. If, I, if he ever comes in here and makes a bet, I'll tell you, just don't do it. He never bets when he thinks he can lose, and he rarely loses. If you tell him, hey, I, I bet I can run faster than you, he'll, he'll have a way to make it work out for his success. So at the end of the day, I told God, look, okay, I'll apply for these two schools. I, so I applied to Cal State Hayward. I, I applied to PUC. Business program, business program. I did not apply for the pastoral ministry program at PUC. Pacific Union College. Seventh-day Adventist school up in St. Helena or near St. Helena. I told God I will work. I will be honest. I will do my best. At the end of the day, if I don't have the money to go to school, deal's off. I'm going to Cal State Hayward. And the story went, I worked. I worked two jobs. I was faithful in savings. I was very good at saving back then before I was married. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I didn't say that. It had anything to do with it, really. <laughs> I got to the end of the year. School's about to start. It's this time of year. This time of year in the Bay Area is great for churches to be outside. So, And our church would regularly empty out onto the parking lot and visit. There would be 40, 50, 60 people standing outside just visiting after church. And being this, the personality that I am, I was making my way around the crowd visiting like a bee with a bunch of flowers. And I approached a friend of mine. He'd been a good friend for a long time. He was uh, one of the reasons I was in the church to begin with, one of the main influences in my spiritual life to this day. And I said, he said to me, I understand you, you applied to PUC. I said, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, got, I understand you got accepted. Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, some of us have been thinking, and I'm about to explain to him why I'm not going, because I need $6,000 and I have 4200 Don't you wish PUC cost $6,000 right now? <laughs> Especially those of you in this front row right here. <laughs> I had $4,200, and I said, so not going. That's my story. I was about to tell him. I was about to, to empty out my problem with him and say, okay, I'm going to Cal State. I'm gonna. It, it's eleven hundred dollars to go to Cal State. You know what I'm gonna do with the other thirty-one hundred dollars? I'm buying a two forty Z. I was gonna arrive at Cal State in style. I was gonna look like I belonged in the upper stories of one of those buildings. And before I could get my story out, he began to tell me his story. And he said, some of us in the church have been thinking about, about you and about your, what you're doing, and we want to help you go to school. And now I'm thinking, oh, man, I've got to tell him no. I've got I to gotta explain to him why I'm not going. And he said, you know, we've, we've kind of taken up an, in, an offering just among us, and we have $1,800 to help you with PUC.
I wasn't clapping. God sealed the deal on a Sabbath afternoon after church. I showed up at PUC, still in the business program. Signed up for only theology classes because I knew God didn't have intentions for me to go to San Francisco. The point of all this is that when you lead a God-directed life, when you surrender to God leading your life, the end of that life, the outcomes of that surrender are not known by you, but they are known by God. And in that moment of saying, thy will be done, the adventure begins. In that moment of saying, thy will be done, the adventure begins. Because the, the next steps are going to be steps walked with the king of the universe. They're going to go to places you didn't expect to go. They're going to go, to go through things you didn't maybe want to go through. But at the end of the day, when you stand at the end of your life, looking back over what God has done, you will be able to honestly say, if I had known what you knew, I would have chosen this path. And I'm not accounting there for death of loved ones and friends and family because I don't believe those are in the will of God. I believe it's a corruption of an understanding of the character of God to believe that God has plans to kill people. Think about how dumb that idea is. Here's God. What is, his, what is the characteristic of God best describing his heart? God is love. And the human condition being broken as it is, we stand up and say, oh, well, yeah, this, this child got killed. Oh, it's the will of God. I don't believe that's true. If you recall, the story in Scripture, the story that we all are engaged with, didn't start in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. The story we're all engaged in started in Genesis 1 with the creation of man in a relationship with God that was loving and blessed and without sin. That's where the story starts. It's gotten corrupted from there. And it's a mess as a result of that corruption. And it is God's plan and his ultimate goal to bring that mess to an end and restore it to a place where we are walking one-on-one, hand-in-hand, face-to-face with him again. That's the will of God revealed in Scripture. And the mess that we find ourselves in since has been a result of sin. So, God's mysterious will. Ephesians chapter 1, it's a, it's a great chapter. Right before this it talks about how he's, he's revealed His grace. He's poured out His grace on us. But I just want you to catch this one little phrase. Having made, to, made, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. I want you to catch those big pieces in there. God made known to us the mystery. What's a mystery? Something you don't, don't know, right? Something you don't understand. Something you don't have a grasp of. It's a mystery. God made known to us a mystery. There's a mystery we are, are not aware of. He made known to us a mystery of his will 
His will is a mystery to us. Why are we so mystified? Because we have little bitty brains and a great big God. Face the facts. Your brain's about this big. God is eternal. God is omniscient. omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is everywhere all the time, the creator of the universe, and you've got this much to work with. Do you really think you're going to get this? Understand who you are and who God is and what the difference is. You're not getting your arms around this. He has to reveal to us the mysteries of who He is and His character and His will and His heart as our lives begin to unfold. He reveals the mystery of His will. Note the next line. According to His good pleasure. He reveals His will because we whined enough that He finally says, I'm tired of listening to her. He revealed His will because we finally got the prayer right. We finally figured out the the proper order of things to ask, and so He did it. We finally got Him to do it. He revealed His will because we gave a big enough offering. He revealed His will because we had manipulated some handle. We'd pulled something and finally made Him behave in the way we wanted Him to behave. Is that how this works? You see, if I can manipulate God under any circumstances, I am now God. He revealed His will according to His good pleasure. Now stop for a second and realize what His good pleasure is. You know what His good pleasure is? Your blessing and mine. It is God's pleasure to pour out His blessings upon His children. Just like it's your pleasure to see a smile on your kid's face, it is God's pleasure to bless your life, to bless and give you things that are beneficial to you. It is God's good pleasure to be a blessing in your life, to hand things to you that are a blessing to you. Some of them you're not even going to understand. Some of you have gone your whole life wanting something, wishing for something, asking for something and not gotten it. And God has replaced something else or given you some other task. And you have been a blessing in that way, in ways you don't even understand. Generations might be changed because God didn't answer your prayer in the way you wanted Him to and He sent you off in another direction. Some of you have desires in your heart that you had laid before God and they're not unreasonable. God, come on. We see it over and over in Scripture with people who are unable to have children. Those of you who have had this situation in your own life, you know how difficult it is. We see it repeated in in Scripture again and again. Now, we only see the victorious ones, right? We only see the ones who eventually get to have the baby, right? But we see the longing in a person's heart right in the scriptures where it says you didn't have this opportunity. You didn't get to have this child. Think of the generational impact of adoption. Think of the generational impact of adoption. Of giving a child a fresh chance who was out of chances. giving a child an opportunity who didn't have any left of opening the doors on the life of a family, of a life of a child that will repeat in blessing for generations because God closed up your opportunity to have your own biological child. You know that's hard. You know it's painful. 
You know it's difficult, but God sees a different end. God sees things that are mysterious to us. He sees things that change the world because of saying no to you and me. God reveals His mysterious will according to His good pleasure because it is His good pleasure to get as much blessing into the mess of a planet where we live as is possible. It is His good pleasure to bless His children. So I want to take you to a human story of this because Jesus is so out of reach to us. He's so far, so much, so so much greater, so much bigger, so much more connected with God than us. So let's take a quick look at a human story. Genesis chapter 12, the story starts now. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I got a plan. Come with me. I'm not telling you where we're going. I hate this plan. I've already told you that. I, I don't like this plan. I don't want to leave the house without a destination. I don't want to be wandering out there. To, to follow after God is faith. This is a big step of faith. I don't know if the rest of you are like me, but I would have had a big... Big difficult moment here. I would have had some prayer time with God. There would have, there would have been some long nights of, of, of anxiousness for me, leaving what I knew to be a good and safe place, to go to a place that God wouldn't even tell me where it was. Come with me, I'll show you where we're going. You ever done that? You ever, have you ever responded yes to that? I've done it, but I've never done it on something that was going to change my life. I've done it when, hey, I, I found this cool creek over here, over the next hill, over the next ridge, around this bend. Come with me, I'll show you. I trusted the person enough to go to the creek. Not sure I would trust him enough to put my whole family at risk. That's what happened here. Come with me. I'll show you where I'm going. And you know, this is, this is, this is baby step one for a guy who's going to make huge leaps off mountains in his faith. Come with me. Some of us may be in this position right now. Some, some of us may be starting out a walk with God where he's saying, come with me. Come on, I know where we're going. Going off to Pacific Union College instead of Cal State Hayward for me was this. Because I knew what the other track looked like. I had a pretty good idea what I was going to do with that one. This one led to things I did not understand. I'd only been a Seventh-day Adventist for about two years, year and a half. I'd only been attending the church for three or four years. I didn't even know the doctrine. I, didn't, I told you last week, I didn't know you couldn't swim. I thought you could swim. I didn't know you had to wade up to only your knees on Saturday. I was letting kids do stuff that other people got in trouble for. And God says, come on, I'll show you. Let's go. If you hadn't forced me, I wouldn't have gone. Genesis chapter 13, and the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Remember, Lot and Abraham have to split up because they have too much junk because of the blessings of God, by the way. 
He says, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and to your descendants for how long? Forever. Are they, they, are they there still? Interesting, huh? Abram stands up on the mountain. He looks around where God, at all the things God has said he'll give to him. The problem is Abraham doesn't get any of this during his lifetime. This is a man who lives in tents and wanders around the rest of his life with a promise in his pocket from God saying, all this is yours. So Abraham walks over all the land. He, every t- everywhere he goes, he walks out onto these beautiful pastures somewhere in the middle of Israel, of what is Israel today. And he looks around and he goes, this is mine. Awesome. Awesome. I wish these other guys would move out. He spends the rest of his life walking the land that God has blessed him with without receiving the blessing. That's a man of faith. That's a growing faith, isn't it? That's a man whose faith is growing. You know the next step, right? Abraham's upset now. He's kind of getting worried about this because he's getting old. If he's going to have all this stuff, he, need, he, know he, needs, he knows he needs somebody to pass it on to. This is one of those situations. They're not having any children. And he's wondering how God's going to work this out. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer from Damascus. I love Eliezer. He's a good guy, but he's the heir of my house. My oldest servant? Are you kidding me? This is the big plan? Ever get frustrated with God's big plan? Yeah, that's their life. That's our life, isn't it? Our life with God is... I love it, I love it, I love it. Oh, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. Oh, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Nobody just cruises through this thing with a smile on their face the whole way. We're all going through times when we're feeling the blessing of God and feeling distant from God. All of us. He brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Was it true? Did Abraham ever see it? Do you have to see it for it to be true? Are you sure? Then why do we act that way? I will pour out a blessing upon you which you cannot hold. Your kids are all going to inherit it, but it's going to be awesome for them. I will pour out a blessing on you which will be amazing. It will take 400 years. But it's going to be really cool then. You're just a seed, Abraham, and there's a giant oak tree coming. You're just, a, you're just a little bitty acorn on a big, big plan. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Do you know that is the sentence upon which Paul builds his entire theology of New Testament righteousness by faith. Abraham didn't even know the impact he was going to have. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes to, to find a way to explain to us that it is believing in God, believing in his, his Son, believing in the sacrifice That is the difference maker. And it was a throwaway sentence in Genesis chapter 15. Just a sentence. And then comes the final day. 
A son is finally born to him and his wife. He's an old dude at the time. I've told you before, after, there's a certain point when you pass it, and I think all of, all of those of us who are, I don't know, 45 or 50 and up, you pass that moment when you say, a children at this time would no longer be a blessing to me. You laugh because it's true. Right? Creaky old bones couldn't handle getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning for feedings. And he said, take now, now, Lord, I know I just said that out loud, but please. Oh, oh, that would be terrible. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Go to Mount Moriah. Now, you notice he doesn't even tell him which one. He says, go to one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And then when you get there, you'll figure it out. So he's off again on a, on a, on a, on a trip. He's bringing along his son. And he says, You're gonna, the end of this trip is a burnt offering. And your son's the offering. He takes him up to Mount Moriah. He finds the place in the mountains where he wants him to go. He goes up to the top of that mountain. His son says, um, Dad, I see that we have sticks. I see that we have fire. I don't see a lamb. What's up? Can I stop you for a second? Sometimes when you are following the mission of God, you will hear the word of someone, sometimes within your own head, saying, I don't see how this plus this equals that. My heart and my flesh do that to me all the time. I don't see how this plus this makes that work. That's a moment when faith is your question, right? That's a moment when you get to ask yourself, am I going to trust God or am I not going to trust Him? What am I going to do? How am I going to follow? How am I going to, how am I going to answer this question? Because the only answer to that question is this plus this plus God equals that. So here's the picture. Here's the way the story works. Abraham goes up a mountain. He goes up a mountain with his son, some sticks, and fire. And he climbs up the other the side of a mountain, right? He's climbing up the mountain. He's working his way up the mountain. He can't explain to his son. All he says to his son is, God will supply for himself a lamb, right? Now, Abraham has already been told, burnt offering your son. Okay, okay. How do you get to that point? Because you leave your home. You leave Ur of the Chaldees, which is perfectly comfortable. It's the only place in the world that is inside plumbing at the time. And he leaves that to go to a place he has not seen, that he does not know about, that God has not revealed to him. But he says, okay, I'll go. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm in, I'm in. Whatever your will is, your will be done. And he heads out into the wilderness and he's not having children. He's not having children. He's not having children. He doesn't know how he's going to get this place that he's in. God takes him up on a mountain one day and says, look around. See all the stuff around you? going to be yours. Yours, your family's forever. Abraham goes, great. No family still. Hey, I don't know how to this plus this equals that because there's a big gap right here in the middle. I don't know what this is going to be. How are you going to make this happen, God? I don't have a kid. And he comes to God one day and he finally says, look, Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit my stuff. You just said I get all this stuff. Great. You're giving to Eliezer because I don't have a kid. 
His wife will work on that for him and try to get him a kid. That doesn't work out so well. And then finally, God shows up one day and says, Guess what? I know you're 99 years old, but we're giving you a kid now. Now? Really, God? Now? Little League? God, now? Really? Late nights? God, now? I've been young a long time. I'm now old. Please, God, what are you doing? This plus this plus that. Okay, it's a good news, but really? How am I going to inherit all this land with it? I'm 99 years old and i got a brand new kid. I won't live long enough to tell that kid where the dimensions of the land are. He's got that child now. He's about 17 years old. He's walking up the side. Abraham's surprised he's 116 years old. He's walking up the mountain. As he's walking up the mountain with his son, he's climbing up, he's climbing up, he's climbing up. And you know what's climbing up the other side? An answer to Abraham's problem. You see, this is how this works. Abraham's going up one side of the mountain, and on the other side of the mountain, there's a goat. God's bringing this goat to the top of the mountain to be tied up in the thicket with him. God God is in need of an, an offering for Abraham. So what does he do while Abraham's climbing up the mountain to do what is the unthinkable? God is preparing beforehand an offering when he arrives at the top of the mountain. You know how you get to the offering God has for you in your life? You go up the mountain, he sends you up. You do what he asks you to do today. You say, okay, thy will be done today. I'm going up Mount Moriah. I'm going up. I don't like this plan. I don't know what you have in mind. That plus that plus my kids get to inherit everything in this land doesn't make any sense to me, God. There's a big gap over here. And when his heart, his son, his very flesh says to him, look, Dad, there doesn't seem to be an answer to this question. The equation isn't working out. We got got fire. We got wood. We got no offering. And here, what does he say? Well, uh, God is going to have to fill the gap where the offering is concerned. Thy will be done. Up the mountain he goes. And while he goes up one side, up the other side comes a ram to be caught in the thicket. The answer to, God, to Abraham's problem, God has already resolved and he's bringing it up the other side of the mountain. That's what's happening in your life. That's what happens in my life. When we say, okay, God, I believe you. I trust you. Thy will be done. We arrive at the place God sent us and His answer is actually there. A lot of us short-circuit the blessings of God by refusing to climb up the mountain. We can't see the equation. We can't figure out how it works out. Folks, we have about $2 million. I love that. We've looked at a plan that's like $7.5 million dollars. Everything inside of me says that plus that doesn't work out. And so I have this piece in here where God has given me an opportunity. And the opportunity is to say that plus God has to be the answer. And he's giving us as a church the same opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, None of us are writing checks for 5.5 that I know of. If you're holding out on me, please let me know. But I know God, God doesn't have problems with big checks. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know what, what, what the end project is. I don't even know exactly how this thing's going to be when it's finished. But I do know that God does. That's all I need to really know, right? 
I, I keep doing my part. I keep giving. I keep supporting. I keep getting involved. I keep telling you, keep, come on, get in the game with us. Help us out. We pull it on the same rope so we can all be going in the same direction. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know we've got a big gap. I've got a God-sized gap. You know how you get a God-sized gap filled? God. I got a, I got two, we got two million, two million dollars. Anybody, anybody used to have that laying around? It's a big deal. And then we got this big gap. I didn't start this sermon to tell you about this mortgage business. I just want you to understand that there's a, there's a God of those gaps. And if your gap is teeny, what do you need God for? I can write checks for small gaps. You know, we can write checks for small gaps. We can cover small gaps. It's the big gaps that cause us to pray, right? When we come up against something we know we can't do, that's when we pray, right? We always think, well, I'll, I'll, get a, I'll, I'll pray. I'll bring everything before God. We really don't. We really kind of come to God with, I got this covered. I'm good. Thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing me so that I can take care of the things I need to take care of. Good, 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 good. I'm awesome. I'm great. Got that, got that, got that. Sign this, sign that, sign that. I'm good. And once in a while we come up to a God-sized gap and we just have to recognize a God-sized gap only gets filled by God. Period. Abraham's going up one side of the mountain. He's climbing up with his son who wants to know how this is going to come out because his son's beginning to figure it out, I think. When he rises to the top of the mountain, there is where he finds God's answer. And God does not reveal the answer until he's all the way into the game. He's got his son who has committed to this too. And he has tied him up. You've got to recognize that what's just happened here is the faith of Abraham is transferring to the next generation because that kid is trusting God to provide a lamb and laying himself on the altar. You aren't going to get that transfer of faith to that child without that incident on top of that mountain. We always think this is a test of Abraham. I think this is just as much a test of Isaac. This is just as certainly the faith of the father being passed on to the children. He says, here it is. Here it is. You climb up on there. I'm going to tie you up. We're going to... We're going we're, we're gonna to do what God said, and we're, I don't know why, man, but he has to do what he has to do when he asked us. So we, here we go. He's on, the, he's, he's on the altar. The sticks are under him. He raises the knife, and that's when God says, hold on, buddy, hold on. And God opens a new picture for Abraham and says, that was never really what I intended, but we had to get here before I could show you the lamb. It's not your son. It's mine. You had to be willing for your son to understand what it means to follow me. But Abraham, it's not your son. It's mine. During the break, I'm going to pray. The offering is going to be taken. And then you're going to listen to a song. The song is by a young woman, that woman right there. Her name is Hilary Scott. She's part of a band called Lady Antebellum, and she just did her first Christian album. But why she did it is what you need to understand. In her experience and in her life, she has, she, she's part of a band that is a hit across country music, and she's making millions. And things are cruising along pretty well for her. Anything she's ever dreamed of, she can now afford to buy. And she and her husband, 
who have a little boy decide that they want another child and they begin to pray. She's a believer and she begins to ask God. And she's sure that God is directing them that they should have another child and she gets pregnant. And it's a great celebration for them. It's a happy occasion. And as they begin to embrace and plan and prepare for this new little girl, she loses the baby. And now there is a gap that cannot be filled by any human explanation. And she said, I went into my writing room not with any intention to write anything, but because it was safe. And it was a safe place to be heartbroken. And it was a safe place to be. And she said, I just started writing. And she said, in the way this particular song came, it made me recognize that I was just a conduit. And so today, I want you to hear the testimony of someone who faced what they could not face with an answer of surrender. Let's pray. Father God, there's no one in this room who hasn't been disappointed with the answer they've received. There's no one in this room least of all me who hasn't sought out your 